Bitter, cold, and aromatic. Artemisia annua herba, King Hal, enters the liver and gallbladder channels. While its bitterness and coldness clear heat, its aroma vents and disperses. It is thus ideal for clearing liver and gallbladder heat and cooling heat in the blood. It vents heat in the yin level outward, bringing the pathogen from the yin level out to the yang level. This is Ghosts in Your Blood, the podcast where I talk about the traditional beliefs and folk remedies that turned into genuine medical and scientific discoveries. So since the first few episodes of Ghosts in Your Blood, I have taken a little bit of a break just to do a little bit of some reformatting and just rethinking a little bit of how I am writing and presenting the episodes. I hope that is something that you enjoy. And of course, I love feedback. If anybody would like to leave me a review or reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter, that would be amazing. Again, if you don't listen all the way to the end, my handle for both Twitter and Instagram is bloodghostspod. So I just want to take a quick beat to talk about ethnopharmacology. This podcast wasn't completely made up out of the blue. It was definitely based in something that exists and is studied. The study of how ethnic groups would use plant compounds and the medicinal uses for them that led to drug discovery is called ethnopharmacology. This covers the identification of natural materials, traditional preparations, the evaluation of pharmacological action of those preparations, potential use and clinical effectiveness, as well as the socio-medical implications. There is also ethnobotany, which is plant use, and ethnobiology, which is the study of the relationships between people and environments. I would also like to say, any books or reference articles that have to do with ethnopharmacology will be welcomed into my life with open arms. So if you don't want to leave me a DM for feedback or anything, definitely send me a DM with your recommendations. I will always be grateful for it. And with that, I want to get right into episode four. And in episode four, we're going to be talking about meridian systems in traditional Chinese medicine. I know there are quite a lot of supporters of traditional Chinese medicine, and there are a significant amount of modern traditional Chinese medicine practitioners. A lot of this episode is going to be talking about traditional Chinese medicine in respect to this. It has been used for literally thousands of years and is one of the absolute earliest forms of therapeutic practices. Traces of therapeutic activities in China date from the Shang Dynasty, the 14th to 11th centuries BCE. So when I say traditional, I mean old as heck. The particular part of traditional Chinese medicine that we're talking about today, meridians, has its first evidence of use in two works. These were recovered from the Mawandui and Zanjiashan tombs in the Han Dynasty era, Shangsha Kingdom. The meridian system is concept where life energy, or qi, flows through the channels in the body, called meridians. 
little side note here. When I say chi, I know that you've heard it about a million times, but I want to clarify that it is actually spelt Q-I. So if I reference any websites or books or anything and I say chi, just know it is spelt Q-I. Okay, so the Meridian Network is divided into two categories, the Jingmai, which are the Meridian Channels, and the Luaomai, which are the Associated Vessels, sometimes referred to as Collaterals. We will be focusing on the Jingmai category in this episode, because honestly, all of the Meridians is the most dense and overwhelming thing to get through when you're really only looking at a small part of it. So let's just whittle it down to what is necessary for today's episode in particular. The Jingmai contain the 12 tendinomuscular meridians, the 12 divergent meridians, the 12 principal meridians, the 8 extraordinary vessels, as well as the Huatao Channel, a set of bilateral points on the lower back whose discovery is attributed to the ancient physician Huatao. The historical books, records of the Three Kingdoms, and Book of the Later Han record this physician as the first person in China to use anesthesia during surgery, and the anesthetic was made by combining wine with cannabis boil powder. Not a single clue what cannabis boil powder is. And one more fun little side fact about meridians. If one counts the number of unique points on each meridian, the total comes to 361. This matches the number of days in a year on the moon calendar system. As long as you ignore that most of the points are bilateral and the actual total is 670. Now, acupuncture actually follows the meridian system, and there are about 400 acupuncture points, not including the bilateral points twice, on the 20 major pathways, which would be the 12 primary channels and the 8 extraordinary channels. Now, these 12 principal meridians is where each meridian corresponds to either a hollow or solid organ. The meridian pathway interacts with said organ. Another little side point here, when I talk about hollow and solid organs in regards to the meridian system, I am not speaking of our organs as we know them in a biological sense. They are not always actual anatomical structures. The meridian pathways will extend along either an arm or a leg. Principal meridians are divided into two main groups, yin, which is the left side, and yang, which would be the right. The yin meridians on the arm are the lung, heart, and pericardium. The pericardial sac is a double-walled sac containing the heart and the roots of the great vessels. Yin meridians of the leg are the spleen, kidney, and liver. Yang meridians of the arm are the large intestine, small intestine, and triple burner, which I have come to understand is the hollow space inside the trunk of the body. The yang meridians of the leg are stomach, bladder, 
and gallbladder. Knowing which meridians are pathways to which organs was the basis of healing by using the flow of chi. Free-flowing chi is how a body remains healthy and any clogged or stagnant meridians lead to illness. This is what the general idea behind acupuncture is. Acupuncture and acupressure are ways of freeing up the chi flow in your meridians to restore the balance of the body. Another way to restore chi flow is herbal remedies. And if you didn't realize when I was babbling about ethnopharmacology, I am definitely going to be talking about herbal remedies today. And now that we have assessed this one single branch of meridian theory with a very long monologue about it, I'm actually finally prepared to talk about exactly what this episode is about. The focus is going to be entirely on a herbal remedy, as opposed to the acupuncture that I babbled on a little bit about. Now, there are a few classic Chinese herbal remedies that I am sure you have heard of before. These would be ginseng, ginkgo leaves, lotus seeds, and mugwort. It was believed that each had a corresponding meridian that would improve qi flow. Ginseng for arm and leg yin meridians, ginkgo leaves for the arm yin meridians, lotus seeds for leg yin meridians, and ginger for both arm and leg yin meridians. If you want to see a massive herb database, head on over to meandchi.com. The herb I'm going to be focusing on today, however, is mugwort, also known as king hao, also known as sweet wormwood. It comes from the Artemisia family of plants, and that's a that's a massive plant family. It covers two to four thousand plants in the daisy family. It includes wormwood that's been used in the production of absinthe, uh, sagebrush, and tarragon. I do remember seeing vaguely in a TikTok at one point. It was like it was in like the plant nerd side of TikTok where the guy was saying that if something has wart in the name of it, it's typically a herbal remedy of some sort, but I couldn't actually find any information about that, so maybe TikTok lied to me, which is honestly, I get sucked into that kind of thing pretty readily. The etymology that I could find for mugwort was mug in Norse, meaning marsh, and wart in German, meaning root. But we're gonna go back, go back to China here. And in traditional Chinese medicine, mugwort is prepared for use by removing impurities, washing, soaking in water, and cut and dry. The herb is used to clear blood heat and stops bleeding. This is what the initial episode quote is referring to. Maybe I should have mentioned before my massive ramble about meridian theory, but the quote from the beginning of the episode is from Chinese Herbal Medicine Materia Medica. That's that's the name. It's long. It is commentary specific to King Hao and the main attributes it has, which, to recap, It has the ability to disperse heat from the liver and gallbladder meridians. It vents heat in the yin level outward. Now, I don't know why, but this just reminds me of an episode of the Magic School Bus where they're like, 
out in a desert or something and there's like a little infographic of a rabbit showing how its ears help regulate its body temperature because the ears have blood flow that disperses heat out through them and for whatever reason I just can't shake that image for venting uh, yin and yang heat. Now because it was believed to be venting heat from the liver and gallbladder, King Hao was a folk remedy for fevers and malaria. Why is that? What was happening upon an ingestion of King Hao infusion? I am so glad you asked. But I will apologize in advance, because this is about to be very organic chemistry heavy, and there's a lot of terminology but there's just no way around it. A diagram would help a ton, but honestly, like there's there's no test. Don't don't worry about it. I'm going to summarize it at the end. Okay. Breaking down some organic chemistry, terpenes are a chemical compound existing in nature that consists of compounds made of a number of isoprene units. Now, an isoprene is a carbon molecule that has 5 carbons connected to 8 hydrogen molecules. And you may be familiar with terpenes being referenced in regards to varying strains of cannabis. Now, I don't know where you're listening, but in Canada, cannabis is legal. And when you go to stores, you can actually look on the label and it will specify the aromatics of that particular strain. And those aromatics are caused by terpenes. These are aromatic oils that are found in plants such as limine for a citrus scent, alpha-pinene, which is pine, linalool, which is mint, nerolidol for ginger, and honestly, so many more with um, names that are very annoying to say. And I'm not going to get into it, but we have to whittle down the terpenes to what's relevant to today's episode. One category of terpenes contains three isoprene units. And these are called sequesterpenes, which is a cyclic carboxylic ester. And they live under the name artaminicin. This artaminicin, as well as its derivatives, is ingested from King Hao, and it metabolizes in the body to form dihydroartaminicin. This undergoes a cleavage of its endoperoxide ring inside the erythrocytes when the molecule comes into contact with heme. Heme is like, um, it's like the precursor to hemoglobin. It's necessary to bind oxygen in the bloodstream. It's biosynthesized in both bone marrow and the liver. Now, there is iron 2 oxide that exists in heme, which breaks the endoperoxide ring that is in dihydroartaminicin. This process creates free radicals, which destroys susceptible proteins, which can result in the death of a little parasite called Plasmodium falciparum, if it happens to be present. This is especially effective in the intraerythrocytic stage of the P. falciparum, otherwise known as the blood stage. Okay, yeah, so that was a tedious explanation of lots of enes, sites, sign-ins, but this is what's important to remember. Through the consumption of mugwort, the body is ingesting a chemical that enters red blood cells and breaks down to byproducts that result in the death of a parasite in human blood. 
And now we get to acquaint ourselves with that parasite, P. falciparum. Now, not only is it the deadliest species of plasmodium, it is the most deadly human parasite, period. This parasite is the parasite that is responsible for malaria. Malaria is a vector-borne disease, which means it's an infection transmitted to humans and other animals by blood-feeding anthropods, such as ticks, fleas, and our other good friend for this episode, the mosquito. The mosquito is well known for its role as a vector, especially in malaria and West Nile. So this parasite, it's a unicellular protozoan parasite. It has a super complex life cycle. And honestly, if I spend too much time thinking about how it evolved this to find this like insane sweet spot that is its cycle of reproduction, I am going to have an existential crisis, but I have to explain it. So let's just jump into the void together. If you weren't a fan of the tedious organic chemistry, hopefully you will enjoy the tedious biology section of today's episode. All right, starting off with when a mosquito has a snack on an infected individual. Um, This is called taking a blood meal, by the way. When the mosquito bites that infected individual, it ingests gabinocytes that undergo an incubation period of um, roughly 11 days. Once the gametocytes have matured into the male flagellated microgametes and female macrogamete, they reproduce, and that forms a zygote, which develops into an oconete, which is a motel cell, meaning it can move around the mosquito's body system. The oconete then settles into the basal lamina and develops into an immotile oocyst. This is where it undergoes a bunch of cell divisions. It forms a sporoblast, which contains thousands of nuclei. Going back to some high school biology, a nuclei is the center of the cell that contains all of the genetic material. Okay, and within the sporoblast, meiosis occurs over 3,000 daughter cells called sporozytes are created, and they break free of the cell wall and get into the mosquito's hemolymph. I had to look this up. This is like insect blood, except it's not blood. It's like the inside goo of bugs. And the sporozytes then go and travel on to the salivary glands. Now that we have all these sporozytes hanging out in the salivary glands of the mosquito, it's time for a blood meal again, and this is considered the infection stage. Now, anywhere from 20 to 200 sporozytes then enter the human body, though in experimental conditions, there can be thousands. What's good is the human lymphatic system is actually very quick to destroy most of the sporozytes, but some get away and they make themselves at home in hepatocytes, which are liver cells. The liver stage of infection or exoerythrocytic stage, within the liver cells, the parasite grows to a trophozoite, which is the feeding stage of a parasitic lifestyle. Similarly to how the oocyte in the mosquito grew a buttload of nuclei to create daughter cells, the trophozoite does this as well in a safe little vacuole in the hepatoite cell. 
This stage can produce up to 90,000 merozoites. Also, I have a little note in my notes. In brackets, says, remember zoite from Sailor Moon. Sometimes I struggle to stay on task. Anyways, these merozoites get released into the bloodstream in bubbles called merosomes. And this is what we care the most about. The erythrocytic stage or blood stage. This is where the parasite enters a red blood cell to continue development, and all these little dudes are going to infect and develop roughly at the same time. It's like in a little bit of an older movie where they're just about to pull off the big heist, but nobody has cell phones yet, so everybody has to synchronize their watch. So what happens is these little guys, they get into the human blood cells, and they actually link up to the circadian rhythm so that they all start popping off around the same time. So within the blood cell, the parasite metabolism hinges on the digestion of hemoglobin. The loss of hemoglobin is what causes many symptoms of malaria, and that is why the blood stage of malaria is when the infection is detectable. I could probably spend an entire episode talking about just the symptoms and problems that come along with malaria, but really quick, headache, fever, shivering, joint pain, vomiting, hemolytic anemia, jaundice, hemoglobin in the urine, retinal damage, and convulsions. Now, of course, this is a cycle, and the parasite continues on to grow and produce gametes, which are then ingested again by a mosquito, and the process starts all over again, but... I don't need to go into the details of where we're at now to back to the mosquito stage. I think you get it. We know what's important now. Okay, this is where it's fun. We get to summarize tedious biology section and link it to the tedious organic chemistry section. So once the parasite is in the detectable blood stage and it has taken up residency in red blood cells, ingestion of something that contains artemisinin eventually breaks down into free radicals in the blood that destroys the parasites, which also happen to be hanging out in the blood. This then ends their weirdly complex reproduction cycle. Okay, okay. I'm calm. I have calmed down now. Obviously, thousands of years ago, none of this information was known, and the folk remedy for malaria survived regardless. My interpretation is this. You start presenting with, like, jaundice and a fever, so the best course of action would be to clear the liver meridians by the ingestion of mugwort. While your traditional Chinese medicine and you believe your qi has been unblocked, in reality, artemisinin is in your blood, just destroying parasites. Of course, what interests me is how this developed over time. The folk remedy was actually key for the Viet Cong in the Vietnam War. At a certain point, the Viet Cong was losing more men to mosquito bites than in battle. This is where Project 523 comes into play. Project 523 was a top-secret initiative by the People's Republic of China in 1967 to find anti-malarial medications to keep the Allies' troops combat ready. This brings us to to Yu Yu, a Chinese pharmaceutical chemist and malariologist and her team. 
They followed a traditional recipe which required the herb to be soaked in cool water and wrung out, as opposed to boiled, steeped in hot water, or dried. The cool water method was, as per the Handbook of Prescriptions for Emergency Treatments, written in the year 340 by Gi Hong. Testing the herb compounds extracted using other methods proved to not have any effectiveness as an anti-malarial. In 1972, she and her colleagues obtained the pure substance from that traditional extraction method and named it King Haosu, or artemisinin. In the same year, Tuyuyu synthesized the compound dihydroartemisinin from the extract. This compound was more soluble and potent than the native compound, and for this, she became the first woman of the People's Republic of China to ever receive a Nobel Prize, as well as being the first ever Chinese Nobel laureate in physiology or medicine. There was also a group of scientists in Shanghai. They determined Artemisinin's chemical structure in 1975 and published it in 1977 when the secrecy rules were lifted. Artemisinin, the most studied derivative, and its semi-synthetic derivative, artether, artemether, artesunate, have been clinically evaluated and are the only antimalarial drugs to which clinical resistance has never been documented. Artemisinin-based combination therapy is the preferred treatment for malaria, as it's more effective and combination of the artemisinin with non-artemisinin therapies will help ensure that resistance is limited. Because this therapy reduces the biomass of the parasite during the stage of its life before it produces new gametes, it's exceptionally difficult for the spread of artemisinin-resistant alleles. And just to cover this base, an allele is a pair of genes that is responsible for the control of a specific genetic trait. So if an allele exists in a parasite or bacteria, that allows it to survive a medication, it will then go on to replicate that gene sequence in its offspring. What's totally insane is that an allele that turns out to be helpful can be a completely random genetic mutation that just happens to help. This is how drug resistance and disease and infection variants develop, and while it seems like a very difficult thing to actually achieve, just think of the sheer mass of numbers bacteria and parasites replicate at. Remember when I said that one cell can replicate into 90,000? And remember how I said that a single mosquito bite can deposit anywhere from 20 to 200 of these initial cells? That, being still an average estimate, gives us a top-end number of 18 million chances of developing a useful genetic mutation. It only takes one of those cells to present a wonky gene expression that gives it protection. I know I have already mentioned that there have been no clinical reports of resistance to artemisinin in P. falciparum, However, that doesn't mean it will never happen. Running a defensive course of therapy is the best way to prevent development of resistance. So we have this very solid antimalarial, but what are we doing with it now? Um, with 
As with like most of the episodes, there is research happening that explores the use of artemisinin as cancer treatment. As of right now, in animal trials, there has been some evidence of inhibiting tumor growth and metastasis. Of course, with study sizes being small, they are unreliable as of right now, and further research is needed to determine the usefulness to humans. There is also another vector-borne disease that is having some artemisinin treatment research being conducted. This is Lyme disease. Lyme disease is a bacterial infection transferred to humans from ticks. And right now, the main treatments are amoxicillin, doxycycline, and surfoxamine. Fourteen different plant extracts were examined against free-swimming Lyme bacteria. Sweet wormwood-derived artemisinin is one of them. The Lyme bacteria has been shown to have some antibacterial resistance, and these in vitro tests of plant extracts have shown to be more effective than the doxycycline and cefiroxime. I know I say this at the end of most excerpts about upcoming studies and research, but more research is needed, and it's going to be a while until effectiveness in humans can be determined. And now it's kind of the time where I roast the traditional perspective a little bit. Now, like I said before, there are still a lot of traditional Chinese practitioners, and honestly, I've got no beef there. And traditional Chinese medicine is a massive entity in itself, and I'm just going to narrow my focus here to meridian theory specifically. There has been zero scientific evidence of meridian channels actually existing. This doesn't necessarily mean that every meridian-based treatment is bogus. And King Hao just taught us that. Um, I also already mentioned that acupuncture is meridian-based, I am legitimately not going to comment on the efficacy of acupuncture because I know nothing about it. Simple as that. But what I am going to roast is meridian theory as found on my all-time favorite medical advice source, Pinterest. It led me to one of my new weird favorite do-it-yourself medical solutions. This is emotional freedom technique tapping. It's an alternate treatment for emotional and physical distress and can also be referred to as just tapping or physiological acupressure, similar to acupuncture, but it's just pressure, and it follows meridian channels to restore your body's energy balance. So let me hook you up with the basic five steps of EFT. Identify your fear or issue you want to address. Determine the intensity of the issue from 0 to 10, with 10 being the worst. Give yourself a phrase that acknowledges the issue and that you accept yourself despite it. Begin your tapping sequence. It is as follows. The small intestine, the eyebrow, side of the eye, under the eye, under the nose, chin, beginning of the collarbone, and under the arm. Recite your phrase as you tap the ascending points. Test the intensity of your issue on a scale of 0 to 10. Repeat these steps until your issue is sitting at an intensity level 
zero. So, yep, okay, yep, sure. Um, however, I have found some anecdotal, you know, stories in that of people saying that, you know, it's helped. And there has been some results in those suffering with PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And this is completely just my opinion, but it seems to me that the phrase you tell yourself out loud and that you still accept yourself is the only effective part of this. It's a pretty similar technique to one that would have been used in cognitive behavioral therapy. But I mean, if you want to tap your face while you do mindfulness exercises, go for it, man. You do you. So that was episode four, the story of how a little Herbie boy turned into an amazing anti-malarial drug. For me personally, I find the classic folk remedy to true medical treatment to be one of my favorite historical developments. I love reading about the genuine belief systems that surrounded the folklore and what people thought was going on when they were employing these herbs and solving their problems with it. I know it became it was like a confirmation bias for them because it it just confirmed their belief systems that were very likely to be untrue, but it really ended up contributing a lot to the evolution of science, and it's one of my favorite things. So, like I said before, follow me on Instagram, Twitter. I still hardly use the Twitter, but I, I swear I will, and I am hopefully going to start a Goodreads list as well for any books that I talk about, mention, or read in reference to the podcast. So once again, the Instagram and Twitter handle is at Pod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>